This is GSAP Conversations from the Graduate School of Architecture, Planning and Preservation at Columbia University in New York City. I'm Dina Malandraos. Thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Sritama from the AD program. And I'm Yuling from the MRIC program. Welcome back to GSAP Conversations. In this episode, architect Jesse Reiser and Nanako Umemoto speak with MRIC student, Jules Claitman. Reiser and Umemoto are both founders and principals of RUR Architecture, a multidisciplinary design firm operating at a wide range of scales, from furniture design to residential and commercial structures, up to the scale of landscape and infrastructure. They reflect on their time in school when the architecture profession underwent a period of experimental exploration while John Hayduck was the dean of Cooper Union. They also trace back to their encounters with Aldo Rossi and many other influential figures they crossed paths with during their time at Cooper Union. They discuss the design process behind their O14 tower and how they arrived at its formal and hyperstructured expression. They also shared with us how their project in Dubai and Taipei function within local contexts around the globe, in which feedback from local communities give their design another layer of complexity. Thanks for listening. Hi, my name is Jules Claitman from the first year of the GSAP MArch program. Today's conversation will be with architects and educators Nanako Umemoto and Jesse Reiser about their design philosophy and professional practice. Thank you for joining GSAP Conversations. I'd like to go back into your career, Jesse. Prior to founding your firm with Nanako, you spent some time working with Aldo Rossi in Milan and interned for John Heydrich. How did these experiences and the offer structures shape the type of architect you are today? Well, I think um, for better or worse, they had a profound effect, probably for the worse, but both Rossi and Heydrich, of course, were fantastic educators. They were not especially at the time what I would say uh, were completely professional architects in that sense of the word, but they were you know, public intellectuals and uh, you know, creators. So in the case of, uh, of Rossi, well, I guess I could back up for a second. We, in the third year at Cooper Union, were suddenly presented with Rossi as our design critic. He was originally assigned to the thesis class, but John Haydick was unhappy with their work. And so uh, Aldo Rossi, who was their kind of major visiting professor, uh, was assigned to us. And so we did a studio. Rossi liked the work I was doing, invited me to work over the summer in Milan at his office. When I arrived there, actually the office was uh, a middle-class bourgeois apartment. There were only five employees and his partner, Johnny Braghieri, and each of us worked in either, well, Rossi and Johnny occupied the living room, I occupied a strange vestibule space, and uh, three others uh, were in one of the bedrooms. The place was, of course, completely fitted out with all of Rossi's drawings and experiments and his, his book projects. So it was not really the milieu that I had expected, you know, for, of a professional office, but, you know, the work was uh, really extraordinary, what was going on. I mean, the Teatro del Mondo was in design, which was that, you know, floating theater uh, for Venice. I worked on a tower uh, project in Pesaro that he did in collaboration with Ivonino. Um, so 
dead serious work, but in the context of kind of almost a domestic context. With John Haydock, even more so. He had no formal office as such. He had an office at Cooper Union, uh, which he didn't really use. I think he used it when he was designing the renovation of the Cooper Union, but he normally worked at home. So we actually did our work, both Nanako and I assisted him on a number of projects. The Devil's Bridge was one of the first ones, and then uh, the well-known ones called the Victims of the Gestapo Project. He would essentially hand us sketches. We would draw everything up in our own studio and then go to his house. And basically the work was done on his living room table. And when the victim's project was composed, its collage was done on the living room floor. So these kinds of influences, I think, really stuck with us. I mean, that, that became, however, kind of unrealistic the kind of starting model for our own practice. I worked for Rossi six years later when he was at that point known to the world. He was still in Via Maddalena, but kind of was bursting you know, with extra employees. And in a way, he also was less engaged in the specific design work of the practice. So what I think really stuck was those early experiences you know, with him. It was kind of worked on a very intimate level, very directly, you know, on all the projects. Uh, you, Jesse, and Nanako met at the Cooper Union. Could you describe the ethos the school had at the time and how it affected starting your own practice? Well, we are actually, we overlap maybe one month or so, Jesse and myself. So when I enter the Cooper, after like one semester, but almost like one month, because we didn't meet before that, uh, he left. So I stayed. So his experience with John Haydock and myself is quite different. I had a conversation with my classmate and colleague now, Stan Allen, and we were reminiscing about the really strange circumstances around Cooper at the time when we were, well, you know, across most of the time we were in the school. The school was undergoing a lot of change, and so influences that you wouldn't expect at Cooper Union, given its reputation, and there was a lot of POMO at the school at the time. Rossi, uh, again, was invited to teach at the school, which was a radical move on the part of Hayduck because there were other, you know, of course, Peter Eisenman, but Robert Slutsky. There were, you know, New York Five, you know, characters there. They, were, they expected a certain kind of architecture, you know, in the pedagogy and from the students that Rossi really didn't represent. But John, I think, was really searching for a, a way of changing his work. And so there was a very deliberate move to bring people outside of the kind of New York scene in, and ultimately did. But what happened with the students was that we were, in a certain way, very confused. We were trying out a lot of stuff. You know, some of it was, you know, there were also, we became, in a way, the focus of the arguments between faculty. So, you know, Bob Slutsky was quite disturbed by the project I did for Rossi, I would say. Um, there were all kinds of you know, situations like that because they were moving away from the kind of um, purism that you saw in, I don't 
represented in that first publication education of an architect, you know, belong to an earlier generation and things then after uh, we graduated got codified again through uh, Diane Lewis and Liz Diller and John and became probably the more recognizable Cooper Union that everybody knows. But in the actual uh, you know, scene, in that window of time, it was really chaotic. I mean, there were a lot of tendencies you know, being explored and a lot of acrimony too, you know, between students, between faculty. Uh, the work was not very good, I would say. Um, I mean, a lot of us probably did better work later, but I think in a certain sense, based upon the kind of <laughs> the work done, it was all kind of a low point <laughs> at Cooper Union. But I mean, you know, schools need to change. And, you know, it's about this strange, you know, chemistry between students and professors and professors and professors. These are very small, you know, kind of hotbeds, especially Cooper Union was a very, very small town. So everybody knew what everyone was doing. And, you know, as soon as something started, you know, heating up, everybody knew about it. So my experience is quite different because, first of all, I was a transfer student, so I already had an undergraduate degree, and I entered again to undergraduate school, which Cooper Union didn't have a graduate school at that point. And then also at that point, um, I entered the second year, and then I went third year and fourth year combined, and then thesis. So for thesis, I had John Haydock and other people, but uh, yeah, major figure was John and Raymond Abraham. But second year and third and fourth, I had uh, Bernard Shumi, and the others are not that well known, maybe except the uh, Professor Henderson. That was uh, actually, the, he worked with Jesse's mother for 15 years in George Nemony's office. So he was there and he was really excellent. But John, at uh, that point, he changed his uh, work already. So it's not like a non-square grid was gone and then his work with more geometrical thing was gone that time. It became more object-oriented, uh, composed uh, architectural work. Yeah, no, it was really interesting. I mean, we had uh, first encountered Bernard Schumi, who kind of later, hired almost a whole kind of group to kind of teach at Columbia. And Bernard was carrying on, um, he was in a way um, criticizing through the seminar the New York Five's approach to modernism. So his seminar was all about all of the refused architecture, all of the you know, non-international style, non-purist uh, you know, legacies that were essentially repressed that was another kind of dimension of the exploration going on there. You know, finding another way forward with the modernist project, uh, you know, but not purism, not Corbusier, I guess, mm. or strange versions of thereof, yeah. In your publication, The Atlas of Novel Tectonics, you make the case that conceptual models can migrate between disciplines, where they, they are instantiated within the conditions and limits that are inherent in those disciplines. How do you see this transfer of models from other disciplines in contemporary architectural practice today? I mean, it, it's um, something that 
kind of touches on a lot of different categories of practice, I would say. I mean, from our own experience, I mean, even early on at Columbia, uh, this may kind of illustrate it, you know, um, the advent of computational work, you know, the sort of exploratory employment in architecture happened uh, substantially here. At that point, there were no um, bespoke softwares. Uh, so we were, you know, raiding other disciplines, the entertainment industry, animation software, cobbling together, uh, you know, material to use for architectural design. Many people were critical of it because of that. But actually, uh, you know, I, I guess this was also sort of part of the um, intellectual milieu and the way we were thinking about it. In a sense, we realized that if you wanted to work with those software seriously, you had to, in a certain way, forget what they meant and really just work with what they did, knowing also that they couldn't produce an automatic architecture. So Jeff Kipnis came up with a very um, kind of fancy word for it, but it actually, uh, to me, makes a lot of sense. And he called it uh, the process of reoriginating material. So it wouldn't be about, I don't know, kind of falling into uh, the idea that you're somehow doing a weak representation of uh, cloud formations as architecture in the software, but that you would need to actually work, say, I don't know, with the structural system, and you would be able to produce cloud-like effects with an actual construction system. You weren't doing a metaphor, you weren't doing a representation, you were in a sense re-originating that material, but you know, specifically in specific architectural terms. I mean, it's going on right now in pretty literal ways with us. I mean, this thing I'm going to show tonight, this uh, the Princeton Buckyball, came from a biological model from em embryology of blastula, which is the, the hollow ball of cells that ultimately forms an embryo, is quite literally transposed uh, and, you know, easily, actually, uh, as an organization for this um, geodetic sphere. But I think it just, it seems to, um, you know, in, in terms of our practice, we're doing it all the time. Mm -hmm. This transfer of conceptual models seems to maybe suggest hybrid structures as solutions in your firm's work. For example, in the O14 tower, the, the structure is an exoskeleton that resolves issues of structure, ventilation, mm -hmm. and envelope in a carefully considered hybrid. Can we speak about your work in those terms? Sure. I mean, certain projects more than others, I would say. I think O14 probably is um, clearly related to that. I guess the thing that I would say first is that all of those kind of simultaneous considerations many times come from using systems that are, you know, kind of massively redundant. So in other words, with the O14 tower, we were dealing with a diagrid structure that could be, you know, um, non-essential structure. In other words, you could remove large chunks of the diagrid and it would find ways of standing up. But no, I mean, I think it also, you know, let's say simultaneous structure and sunscreening and uh, stack effect came from working through the problem. So it didn't arrive immediately. 
Actually, I mean, the first versions of the O14 tower had glazing directly in the holes. And it was actually an aesthetic consideration, a craft and aesthetic consideration that moved us to kind of shift the glazing in the whole internal enclosure a meter away. Uh, but then, you know, because part of our approach to design is to actually try to mine what we're seeing in the process, we realized that that then produced a gap space, which would then produce a stack effect between the outer and inner shell, that it didn't arrive immediately, you know, in the design. It went, we went through many kind of iterations uh, and benefited from the kind of byproducts of certain operations, but not functional first. Maybe, you know, an aesthetic thing actually triggers a functional consequence uh, in, in a project. That happens all the time. But the O14, uh, that uh, people think that a whole is related to the interior configuration, but actually it's independently developed. So the slab doesn't coincide with the whole of the exoskeleton. And also that came from, originally we were designing 85th uh, floor towers, which is really gigantic, which had a curtain wall and a structure inside. And then our client wanted to have that kind of design into the 22-story buildings. And then at that point, if we reduce that thing to 22-story buildings, it didn't work at all. What happened was we were in a big competition with OMA and Zaha Hadid and, and Tom Main. And, us. and I guess Zaha won that competition for this central building in, in a plan called Business Bay, but the young developer um, who ran the competition was going off on his own and he liked our project. So the first sort of intuition he had was to, well, it's not going to be an 84-story mixed-use tower, I want a 22-story office building. So there was a kind of monster first version which just didn't work. It was too formally elaborate. Yeah, you needed to have a lot of uh, columns which doesn't yeah. work for the small tower like that. So we are consulted by a structural engineer Israeli Sinek, and then we went back and forth, and then we finally came to the conclusion that we should pull the structure out of the inside of the tower. And then uh, also the window wall doesn't need to really coincide with the pattern of the uh, exoskeleton, which is really mm -hmm. successful. Well, the argument was too that um, and it didn't really happen, it's one of these architects' dreams, I suppose, but it still could happen, was that instead of regimenting the glazing and making it uniform, that we would uh, kind of create different densities of openness and dark and light zones, and that would have an effect on the programming in the office spaces, which we, of course, you don't have control over because it's spec, right, it's just open. Most of the clients who moved in, unfortunately, uh, and you'll see tonight, did more conventional, you know, interiors. But it's, you know, it's still there. It's, you know, it could be used in a more um, free way, I would say. It would you know, do something to the hierarchy in the office and the way people would interact and the atmosphere in the office. 
your firm is currently working on two projects in Taiwan's two largest cities, uh, the Taipei Popular Music Center and the Kaohsiung Port Tem Terminal. How have you seen Taiwan change since you started doing competitions there, and how do you think these two projects contribute to Taiwan's current development and its public realm? Taiwan is a very interesting country for Taiwanese. It's a country. For mainland, it's not a country. It's prefecture. So it's very ambiguous. But actually, we won the first competition before we uh, did these two competitions. And that time, the city was quite random, and it's not that developed well. And then when we went back to a second time for this competition for yeah, Taipei Pop, city was quite organized and cleaned up and then much more modernized. Before that, they had one typology say that because it's a tropical climate, uh, they had this, the underneath is all arcade and then a building is sticking out. So we can walk around arcade and you can avoid direct sunlight. And that was uh, one typology. And when we went back to second time, that was changed. It's still typology was there, but all facade was renewed. And then lots of fancy boutique and restaurant came in. So the, uh, Taiwan is uh, changing all the time because Taiwan is new countries. And then they are still creating their own language of cultures. So that our project is really um, one of the interesting ones that probably creating some cultural aspect they want to create in that country. They want to have a more stunning uh, architecture, which is different from others. I mean, there's a sense with foreign architects, you know, how do they work in a foreign context and uh, what is the legitimacy of doing projects in a foreign country that you don't know too much about? And I would say, I mean, actually, most of the work, actually the work that we did in Dubai, the O14 Tower, and the uh, work in Taiwan. Um, yeah, they, they both, it's interesting, these two countries are quite similar because both of the countries ask you to create iconic buildings. They had um, competition programs which were almost like five-year plans. First it was more related to heavy industry, and then the ones that are you know, part of the group that we were uh, part of, which I guess includes the Performing Arts Center by OMA, and you know, I don't know if Toyo Ito's Opera House is somewhat related to that as well, but there was a very concerted effort in Taiwan by the architecture community, the government, and the planning community uh, because they had hands in schools like this, Harvard, basically, you know, global connections to what was going on with experimental work uh, or, you know, promising architects that they, you know, brought them in. Yeah, I mean, I think it was part of a grand scheme, in a way, a cosmopolitan project to, uh, you know, redevelop certain aspects of uh, you know, of the cities. The cities were built very quickly by the KMT, by, you know, uh, Chiang Kai-shek, kind of fast and dirty construction right after, you know, the founding. And a lot of that was, you know, quickly kind of decaying and going into ruin. So it's part of this, I think, very, you know, clear and concerted effort, uh, you know, to change 
the nature of the urbanism and the architecture there. So we kind of got swept up, I would say, into that. Well, thank you, Monaco okay, and Jesse, for the conversation. <laughs> this podcast was produced by Columbia GSAP. You can find more information about the school on our website at arc.columbia.edu.